Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webinar, Surviving Safety, Excelling as a Safety Professional While Maintaining Personal Wellness, sponsored by Aveda. We're going to give our audience just a minute or two to settle in today, and we'll be back with you to start the presentation in just a moment or two. Thank you. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Surviving Safety, Excelling as a Safety Professional While Maintaining Personal Wellness, sponsored by Aveda. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'll be moderating today's event. We'd like to thank you all for joining us for this webinar today. And before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean that the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, just click on the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Type in your question and press the send button. You can ask your question at any time during the presentation today. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question today. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. After this presentation, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenter. With us today is Corey Worden, who serves as the safety advisor for the City of Houston Health Department Corey is an experienced safety pro with more than 16 years under his belt, and he's the author of nine books about safety-related topics. Corey's works have been published by the American Society of Safety Professionals, the Association of Occupational Health Professionals in Healthcare, and the Institute for Safety and Health Management. In addition to receiving numerous military medals and awards, Corey has been honored as part of the 2015 Rising Stars of Safety by the National Safety Council, and he was the 2020 recipient of the Houston Health Department's Excellence in Community Service Award. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today, and Corey, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great, thank you. As always, I appreciate the invitation to be here today. It's always great to speak with like-minded people and 
always appreciate the opportunity. So as we talked about, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about the safety as a as a career field and some of the different things that we all collectively experience. So what I based this on was the fact that we all work around developing, you know, safety leadership and safety management systems and how we can do that effectively, but at the same time, not burn ourselves out and watch out for these different potential challenges or uh, pushback or these different situations that can cause a lot of distress and a lot of potential mental health issues, um, most of which I've seen myself, to be honest. So we'll we'll talk about that as we go. Um, and as always, if there's any you know questions or concerns, we're always happy to, to talk more. So like I said, we'll talk today about some of the things we've learned over the years from peer feedback. So one of the things I always try to do is speak with with individuals that I work with, both in, in my organizations and organizations we partner with, and also with people from National Safety Council and from ASSP and all the different organizations, so that we can always learn what that feedback sounds like and what it looks like and how we can improve not only with our technical knowledge, but also with our interpersonal skills and communication skills and all these different things that that we we need to develop that you know transformation and, and servant leadership. So within that, we'll also talk about how we can increase our validity and reliability of our leadership. So how we can make sure that we know that our safety leadership is actually creating safe conditions and safe work practices, and it will continue to do so. So we want to watch out for those different flukes and lucky spells and different things that, that may be deceiving. And then we'll talk about how emotional intelligence and empathy plays into that, not only for ourselves in terms of our communications and our, our workings with our, you know, employers and our teams and, and the general public for that matter, but also the things we want to watch out for on our own end so that we don't end up with these different uh, potential mental health issues or, or burnout or stress or these things that can cause some difficulties. And then, of course, we'll also talk about how that relates to job satisfaction and overall anxiety. So, what we always like to do is tailor these conversations to a, a foundation, you know, to a to a set of benchmarks, to a set of standards, things that we can look to, so that it'll provide guidance. So it's not just a matter of watch out for this, watch out for this, watch out for this. You know, we can say okay, this is what we're doing. This is the process we follow, and here's how it relates to that. So, in this case, we're going to talk about risk management, and we're going to talk about safety management. So. The first thing about this is with our jobs, you know, we're ultimately trying to compete with a number of other organizational values and priorities for resources, bandwidth, and attention. So what that means is that we want to be able to do this, to be able to relay the hazard, the risk level, the expectation for hazard control, what those options are, and then how to do that effectively without creating any kind of kickback or any kind of situation where we're, we're being perceived as a nuisance or as a, um, as a hindrance. So we want to be able to be added value and we want to be able to be effective and efficient. So the first part of that is being able to relay the risk. And so we want to make sure the organization understands whether we're talking about a strategic risk that's going to affect long-term viability uh, or in some cases solvency, or whether we're talking about operational risk, which means the ability 
to be able to perform our, our operations and our functions, having the staffing, having the logistics, being able to watch out for those day-to-day -day hazards. And then of course, we have to look out for external risks, things we can't control, but we can mitigate. And then of course, hazard risk, which goes into the risk treatment process. So for each of those hazards, the organization needs to make a decision as far as whether it's risk acceptance, risk avoidance, risk transfer, or um, risk control. And so the first step of this is always getting on the same page as far as those expectations. Because if the organization is saying risk acceptance and we're not comfortable with that, then we need to be able to make a case for why risk control is needed. And we need to be able to either get on that same page or figure out where we're gonna go from there. But if we had that gridlock and that standstill on that initial decision, then that, that can lead to some pretty pretty uncomfortable situations. At least I've seen that in the past. So like we said, we wanna be able to get on the same page there. So we wanna all be in agreement as far as whether we're doing risk acceptance, risk avoidance, risk transfer, or risk control. And then likewise, if we're doing risk transfer, we wanna make sure we know that the, if we're doing a contract, the organization that we're working with, you know, the expectations for them. So we don't, well, we're gonna transfer that risk, but then we bring in an organization that's, you know, unsafe. So again, we wanna make sure that we're all on the same page there and we're able to find common ground. Then the next step, of course, is that we wanna be able to look out for how this relates to continual improvement and high reliability. So when we look at our safety management system, as you can see here on the bottom, we're talking about basically uh, basically six major components. We have our, our hazard analysis, where we know the hazards and the risks. We know the hazard controls, which are the expectations for what we're gonna do about those hazards. We have our communication, as far as relaying the expectations and enforcing and reminding. Then we have the leading indicator, so we can validate that those expectations are being met through inspections and observations and near miss reports and perception surveys and all those different things. And then we have our lagging indicators to figure out if anything's gone wrong. And then we have our incident analyses. We have our, our fault trees and our FMEAs and five Ys and all these different ways we can figure out what happened and how it happened and why it happened. But the important part is being able to relay how these things relate to that high reliability concept. So we wanna be preoccupied with failure that's how we look for the hazard. We look for the risks. We make sure we have the right controls. And so it's one of those things that if the organization isn't, isn't willing to implement those controls, then we need to be able to either articulate why those things are important, or we need to be able to find an alternative solution that everybody's comfortable with that mitigates the risk to the, you know, to the acceptable level while working within the constraints of logistics and budget and personnel and all these different factors. And then of course, we wanna be able to communicate these things. And that also takes us into deference to expertise where we wanna make sure that we're bringing in the right people. So we get the right subject matter expertise, but also we get the buy-in. So the organization knows what's expected. They have everybody's involvement and engagement. And then we're able to develop the controls and communicate the expectations to where everybody knows what's happening and why. Um, and then we wanna do that in a way that's sensitive to operations. So what we mean by that is we wanna make sure that when we're working on these things, again, we're providing added value 
so the organization knows that the controls are preventing incidents that's going to enable the operations so that it 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 mitigates that that perception that we're a hindrance or we're standing in the way of operations and then of course we want to make sure that we're also reluctant to simplify so for example you know we may have an engineering control but it may not cover the hazard to the extent it needs to so we need to also implement an administrative control or ppe on top of that and so again, we want to be able to communicate those things in a way that the organization understands why it's there. And then, of course, for those instances that do happen, we want to make sure we can learn from that. So we're committed to resilience. So ultimately, like we said, the first step in that is that we're all on the same page so that we know what the hazards are, what the different risks are, what we're doing about the risks, whether we're going to control it, and making sure the controls are to the level that's um, effective. And then, of course, we want to make sure that we're communicating those expectations so everybody knows what's happening and why. So in that case, we're on the same page. And then, of course, that goes into our safety management system, which is our continual improvement. So we have our continual safety committee or infrastructure. We continually assess the hazard controls, communicate the expectations, validate them through our leading indicators monitor the lagging indicators so we know what went wrong and then and analyze those those situations so that we're able to to be resilient and learn from them so once we're doing that and here's another example of what that looks like then that kind of gets us on the same page so one of the biggest things that tends to cause a lot of friction and a lot of issues is that either there's not clear communication as far as the hazard and the severity of the hazard, the risk level, or there's not articulation as far as why those controls are needed. And so a lot of times the organization may misinterpret that or the safety professional might feel like they're being put into a position where um, the situation is, is not at the level of safety that's, uh, that's desired, and then it's gonna create that continual friction. So again, it's important to get on the same page and then that takes us into how we're able to develop these things as far as leadership. So of course, transformational leadership, we wanna make sure that we're able to articulate what we're doing as far as safety leadership. So what the hazards are, what the risk levels are and why those controls are needed. And then from there, we wanna make sure that we're watching out for servant leadership. So we wanna make sure that we're able to do these things that benefit our teams and benefit you know the the population that that we're serving so one of the things we always talk about with employers is that you know we want to try to avoid those professional development embargoes um i've seen a lot of situations in the past where you know sometimes organizations will be hesitant to engage with um with with things like national safety council or or assp or whatnot because what they're afraid of is that um there, there's going to be a, a, a legal situation or, or some kind of miscommunication or whatnot. But um, ultimately, if we're able to advocate for that, not only does it allow for continual professional development, but it allows for the intake of, of best practices, which is always a good thing. Um, one thing I always say, we want to try to avoid what, what I call dessert tray leadership, where if we have people that are on our teams, especially if we have direct reports, is that we want to make sure that we're not expecting people to continually work and continually create and then bring us these options. And then we just kind of pick, we cherry pick 
the ones that we want and then they end up with a lot of work that never never gets used but if we're able to set those expectations early and define what we're looking for then that way all the production is done in a way that's effective and efficient and that's always very important there as far as hazard controls because in many cases we're working on a limited budget you know we may not have um we may not have the money we may not have the availability of the of the product we need that was a big deal in the last two years with n95 respirators is that their data weren't there to be bought so we want to make sure that we're able to clearly define what we're looking for what we need and then we're able to do that effectively instead of looking for a whole bunch of options and then then trying to cherry pick the best of them after there's been a lot of resources put into it uh, and the other thing is that you know procurement is, is not necessarily progression you know there, there's a lot of great tools out there these days you know more each year there's different electronic resources there's online resources there's all kinds of tech and that's all great but what we want to do is make sure that we have a purpose for that so for example if we're going to if we're going to improve our um let's say our, our leading indicator program so we want to improve that through the use of technology then we want to make sure that we already know we have the hazard controls so for example if we're gonna let's say we're going to do an inspection to check for um disease exposure prevention you know we want to make sure that we already have all of the prerequisites there so that's going to be your uh your physical separation your social distancing your face mask or source control your hand hygiene your uh, surface sanitation for those people that are within you know proximity to potentially infectious persons you got your respirators and your ppe and your bio waste disposal so once we have all those things then we're going to create the expectations and then we can create the checklist so we can inspect and observe to make sure those expectations are being met so you know, are people social distance? Are people wearing a mask? Are people wearing a respirator? Are we disposing of bio waste properly? And then at that point, once we have the controls and we have the expectations, then if we choose to implement a new solution for the actual observations, such as a, a tablet with an online checklist or whatnot, then it simply reinforces that. It's just a new way to do the data collection in a more effective way. But if we have the tablet, we have the online resource, but we don't have the hazard control or the checklist, then it's not gonna really improve anything. It's just gonna be a shiny new toy. So again, we wanna make sure that if we procure things, we're doing it for a purpose that's gonna improve and not just because it's cool. Um, and then the next thing, of course, is that we wanna, again, going back to the first couple of things we talked about is we wanna make sure that we're clearly communicating so that there's an understanding, here's the hazard, here's the risk level, here's the expectations, and here's what that looks like in terms of safe practices and safe conditions. But we don't want it to be the kind of thing where, you know, a couple of months pass and there's an incident and somebody says, well, we didn't know that we were supposed to do this. And then the question, okay, well, we, we did the training, we, we did the in-service for the hazard control. And they say, oh, well, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't use these specific words so i didn't know it was important or someone will say well you didn't you didn't convince me that it was important so again we want to make sure that we're being very clear and very articulate with our communications so everybody knows the expectations and then we always want to ask for feedback and ask for any kind of input so that there's a two-way communication and everybody's engaged in it but if we find ourselves just talking blankly to a group and then later on something happens there's always the chance that there'll be 
you know, someone will say, well, yeah, I, I, you didn't convince me or you didn't use the right words. I didn't know the importance. But if we can avoid that situation, then it just removes that friction. Uh, then the other couple of things on here are that, you know, we want to watch out for situational and contingency leadership as well, because working in safety, you know, we have situations where we're working on day-to-day -day improvements. You know, we're working on monitoring our existing hazard controls. We're working on communication and we're working on um, leading indicators. But then you also have situations that call for very distinct directive leadership where you may be dealing with an incident command system construct or, or an emergency situation or whatnot, or, or a incident analysis where, you know, something bad happened. And so in that case with situational and contingency leadership, we want to be able to know when there's a shift and we need to go to anything like, like directive leadership or, um, or again, you know, contingency leadership where we're going to be able to change the, change the, um, the intention and, and define where, when it's a, a situation that has increased severity, increased urgency. Um, so we want to make sure that we're able to able to um, communicate that. And then the other things there is that we want to watch out for when there's a difference between um, macro leadership, meaning that we're going to you know give give more autonomy and we're going to let people figure things out, and when we need to be more micro, where we need to define the expectations very clearly and then make sure they're being done. And that kind of gets us to a point of optimal leadership. So it kind of looks like this. So if you notice here on the top there, it kind of gives a little dashboard, so to speak. So you've got your optimal leadership in the middle, but what you'll find is this is after kind of several years of observations and, and conversations and research. Over on the left side, if we have organizations or, or leaders that veer toward really hyper macro management. So they they just really kind of let things go and let people figure things out and they just kind of stand back and don't really say or do anything. Then typically what happens in the employment population is that people either become very apathetic where they're like, well, this organization doesn't care about my safety, so I don't care either. Or you get into power struggles where somebody on the team will decide that in the absence of safety leadership, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm gonna be the safety leadership. And then it kind of turns into this kind of Lord of the Flies situation where people are fighting amongst themselves about who's in charge of safety and, and it just doesn't really work. On the right side, though, you get a situation where it's the opposite. It's hyper micromanagement. So you get people are just on everybody and it's this constant like dictatorial, you know, very, very defined, um, uh, very, very uh, directive leadership. And so what we find there is that people tend to get scared, like they think they're going to get fired. And there also turns into resentment where when people feel like they're going to be fired, they get anxious, and they get upset. And ultimately, they start looking for another job or they have incidents because they're because they're on edge. You know, they're working on razor's edge. Um, for example, I had a, a leader once or earlier on in my in my life that told me straight up that his idea of leadership was every month he called all of his team members, all of his direct reports into the office and threatened to fire them because he thought that keeps them on edge, keeps them productive. And in reality, it just makes him scared and upset. Um, and so you see on the bottom here, it kind of breaks that down even more. So what we've seen is that like on the left side, when you have that 
that micro uh, macro management, you have the very kind of apathetic, hands off, little communication, no expectations. Then you know, on one end of that spectrum, you get people that are you know just kind of well, whatever you know, apathetic, um, a lot of inactivity, definitely no, you know, nobody's looking for hazards, nobody's putting controls in place, nobody's communicating, nobody's doing leading indicators. And then the other side, you get that kind of Lord of the Flies thing where people will fight amongst themselves about who's in charge in the absence of actual leadership. Um, but in actuality, you know, with nobody having any actual role, then it just turns into this kind of unfortunate situation. Uh, you see there on the other side, when you have that, that um, micromanagement, we get the opposite there where on one end, people are scared and they're kind of on Raider's edge working trying not to get, trying to get fired. But then on the right side, you get that resentment where people, they say, wow, these people are just always on my back. I'm upset, I just want a different job. So either way, people are either not productive, they're in danger of being injured or, or exposed or ill, or they're gonna find a new job and you don't have any continuity or any um, sustainability. So within that, the first thing to look for, of course, is the way the organization is set up. So if we're looking for management, there's a big difference there between the horizontal structure where you have your different departments, and then you've also got your vertical structure where you've got your, um, your different organizations. Um, so for example, if you're talking about a healthcare system, you, know, you may have your vertical structure um, where you've got different hospitals. So you've got hospital one, hospital two, hospital three, hospital four. And then on your on your horizontal, or excuse me, your vertical. Yeah, on your horizontal. Sorry, I got that mixed up. On your horizontal, you've got your different departments. So in your hospital, then you've got your um, your ICU and your emergency department and your radiology and your uh, clinical units, you know, et cetera. So within each hospital, you've got the different departments. So you got your horizontal structure and you got your vertical structure. When that becomes challenging is when you have different leadership. So you've got one set of leadership directing the hospital itself, that's your, you know, your executives and your management. And then you've got your individual department leadership who's developing the objectives for the individual departments, like what happens in the ICU, what happens in the ED, what happens in the radiology department. If neither of them take on safety, so the hospital's not talking about safety and the department's not talking about safety, then it's absolutely true that the employee is not gonna hear about safety. You know, they're, they're not gonna hear about the hazards. They're not gonna hear about the controls. They're not gonna hear about the communication uh, or the leading indicators for that matter. So what we wanna do there is either number one is define, okay, well, is, is safety gonna be handled at the macro level by the organization, by the hospital and by the system, or is it gonna be handled by the department or both. And so if it's gonna be that way, then we wanna make sure it's reinforced. So the hospital or the organization sets the expectations and then the department knows those expectations and they can reinforce them. And that way, when it gets to that particular department in that particular hospital, they know exactly what the hazards are, what the expectations are, and they hear about it, they know about it, and they can validate that it's being done in real time. And so when we had that mixed management structure, when you have both vertical and horizontal, sometimes it becomes challenging because neither one of them will be talking about safety and it just gets overlooked. 
And so if we watch out for that management structure, that can tend to help with the situation. So once we have that, so now at this point, we have our communication, we know the hazards, we know the risks, we know we're putting the proper controls in place, we've articulated why that's important. So we're reducing a lot of the friction, we're increasing communication, we're working on professional development so we can get best practices. We are, um, we're, we're being clear with expectations so we're not creating a bunch of lost work and lost time. And of course, um, now we're able to do this so that we can increase safe work practices and safe work conditions. And so what I say on here is we wanna do this regardless of buzzwords. There's, there's a lot of chatter that we always see in the safety community where people will talk about, oh, well, it's, um, it's behavior-based safety or it's, um, it's, it's regulatory issues or it's, um, it's employee-based safety or it's um, you know, any, any number of these different things. But the reality is that regardless of what we're calling it, we're looking for safe work practices, which is how we do our tasks inside of safe work conditions, which is the safe facilities, the safe equipment, and you know, all the different emergency management, weather protocols, all those different factors. So if we do that, then what that enables is that we're able to help other people. And at the same time, we're able to take care of ourselves because especially like in a healthcare organization, if we have situations that are unsafe for the employee, then by definition, it's also gonna be unsafe for the patient or for the bystanders. And so we wanna make sure that we're able to do this. So to make that happen, we get into dual accountability. And so of course with dual accountability, we wanna avoid those situations where people will say, oh, well, behavior-based safety is just trying to you know, blame the employee. Or if we have the opposite where they say, well, it's a uh, regulatory and everybody's just waiting around for you know, OSHA to come by or for the management to talk about it. What we want to do is do accountability. So like we said there, the employer or the leadership or the safety leader for that matter, then we're going to be able to do the safety analysis, know the hazards, define the risk level, put the controls in place. And then we're going to do that with engagement and with communication and with feedback from our team members. And then once we develop those, those hazard controls and expectations, then from there, now the leadership has the responsibility to continue to monitor that and continue to improve based on the safety management and the high reliability principles. And the employee has the responsibility to stay engaged and to follow those safe work practices and watch for the safe conditions and to report the situations and the incidents. And then we can continue to improve as a whole. But if one side is waiting for the other one, then ultimately we're gonna miss something. And so that gets us into the, the work itself. So now we've talked about the management, we talked about the safety management systems, we talked about the leadership and the management setup, we talked about communication. So now with the individual you know, employees and the individual work, then we wanna make sure that we understand, you know, there's a big difference between being responsible for safety and, and having the authority to make direct changes. So what we wanna do is know where we stand. You know? So for example, if we don't have the authority to purchase PPE, then we wanna know who does and we wanna be involved in those conversations and we want to get those people on the safety committee 
and we want to be able to explain why those things are important and how to make that happen. So it's not the kind of thing where we're just talking about why it should be that way and we're being interpreted as complaining, but people don't really understand what the situation is. And so, of course, we want to do that proactively. So we want to be able to analyze the hazards, identify the needs, and make those, make those recommendations and take the appropriate actions before there's incidents. And then from there, we want to be able to resonate that with everybody. So for example, we want to know our audience. If we're talking to team members, it's probably not going to resonate with them if we stand in front of them and talk about the cost to the organization. You know, if we say, well, the incidents for the last month cost the organization, you know, whatever, $200,000, they're going to go, well, okay, I, I'm not involved with the budget. You know, I'm just worried about not getting hurt. But if you talk to the senior management, then we want them to understand that these incidents, they're affecting individual employees, people's safety and health. They're affecting people's livelihoods. They're affecting the organization's viability. They're affecting operations. They're affecting uh, the bottom line. So we want to be able to know the audience and be able to explain these things in a way that's going to resonate. And so we want to do that in a way that's not any assumptions, any arrogance or condescension. So what I mean by that is when we're safety professionals, you know, we get very, uh, very accustomed to talking about safety. And so if we talk about a regulation, like, for example, let's say respiratory protection, which is 1910.134, it, it's very easy for me to get into that and I'll go, well, 29 CFR 1910.134 says that we have to have hazard analysis and medical questionnaires and training and fit testing. And I can get into that in two minutes will pass and people are looking at me wondering what I'm talking about. Uh, so if I go into those conversations, assuming that everybody's at that same level, or if I'm, or worse, if I condescend about it, I'm like, well, you don't know this, what's wrong with you? You know, the fact is they never had that training. You know, it wasn't part of their professional upbringing. So we wanna make sure that we don't go in there assuming things and condescending about it. And then from there, when we're doing this, one of the things I've seen in the past that was kind of danger, danger area is that some organizations, for, for legal reasons, if they're working on quality improvement or if they're working on uh, some, some different situations involving quality or whatnot, they'll have these legal disclaimers. So what that means is that because this is, you know, internal information and we're working on quality improvement, then it, it's not discoverable. And sometimes they'll get mistaken and they'll think that you can put that quote unquote quality statement, the disclaimer onto um, an incident report and that somehow, you know, OSHA can't get, can't see it. But that, that's, as we all know, it's, that's not how it works with OSHA record keeping. And it's not how it works with OSHA 300 logs and things of that nature. So it's important that we're able to articulate that as far as a precedent so the organization understands the boundaries as far as legal disclaimers and quality improvement versus incident reporting and OSHA record keeping. So once we have those precedents, now we're talking to people, now we're starting to work on these things. Then again, we wanna explain how this works holistically because sometimes organizations will assume that the safety professional or the occupational health nurse or the risk manager is gonna just handle all this. And they don't have to think about it. I'm like, I had somebody tell me once, well, if I have to think about this, then why'd I hire you? 
you know, but the reality is that that safety culture is just not going to proliferate unless we have everybody involved. So this kind of shows how that works. So you see in the middle there, we're again, we're aiming for safe work practices or safe behaviors within safe conditions. And so to do that, we have our safety management system. So we have our committees, we have our hazard analysis, hazard controls, communication, leading indicators. And then to make that happen, everybody needs to be engaged, follow the safe work practices. So follow the SOPs, use the PPE, et cetera. Everybody needs to participate as far as communication and engagement and, and sharing best practices, sharing stories, sharing recommendations. And then everybody needs to communicate these things. So to make that happen, then the leadership needs to set the example, set the expectations, provide recognition, especially when people are doing a great job, and do diligence. You know, they want to, they got to provide the PPE and provide the processes and provide the um, the oversight, all the things that are needed. And then lastly, you got your occupational health and safety, where that way we're going to be able to provide the consultation, the assistance, the support, and the oversight to make all these things happen. So if everybody works together, then we're able to make those safe work practices and safe conditions a reality. And then within that, like we talked about before, is those things uh, allow for transparency and allow for servant leadership and uh, professional development and, um, and horizontal and vertical management structures and all the things that are needed to make that a reality. So then of course, with our safety committee, once again, we want to make sure that we're able to articulate why the safety committee is so important. So it's not just something that you know takes an hour out of each month. It's it's important that it's able to provide that engagement and that subject matter expertise and that advice and consult. So that over here you have your in your big triangle here in the middle, you have your leadership structure, you have your employees, you have your department leadership, and you have your organizational leadership. And you have your line authority and you have your performance improvement plans and everything that happens there. And that's where your dual accountability is needed. The organization's got to provide the, the hazard analysis, the hazard controls, the expectation. The employees had to provide feedback and input and meet the expectations and follow the safe work practices. And then over here off to the side, you have your safety committee where that's where you get your subject matter experts together. You determine where the hazards are, what needs to be done about it, and make those recommendations so they can implement that into the operations. But it's also important that everybody understands that the safety committee isn't line authority. So if there's a performance issue, like if somebody's not following the safe work practices, the safety committee may be able to identify when those things are happening, but it's not their job to write the performance improvement plan. That's where it goes over to your line authority. So again, knowing the differences is very important there. Then once we start doing the hazard analysis, then you know first things first is we want to use that as an engagement opportunity. So we want to make sure that we're getting the feedback and the input so people can tell us when there are safety issues. And then we want to have the due diligence so we follow through on these things. So when we identify the hazards, then we want to explain what we're being done about it. And then from there, like we said, with the risk assessment, we want to be able to articulate the frequency and severity and we want to make sure that we're being objective about it. Some of the things that can get tricky is when it becomes subjective. So for example, with the pandemic in the last two years, there have been a lot of situations you know, worldwide where people have said, well, in my opinion, 
I don't think that this thing is a high risk. And so therefore we're not gonna do whatever it is, face masks or uh, distancing or respirators or whatever's needed. Um, and without a, you know, there wasn't an OSHA regulation up until the ETS came out a couple months ago. And so it became very subjective. So again, we wanna watch out for objectivity there so that we're able to clearly define what the hazards are, what the risks are without any personal bias. And the bias may come from, you know, relativity, meaning I haven't seen that hazard right in front of me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Or it may be personal experience where they say, well, you know, I tripped and fell last week and I didn't get hurt, but in reality, somebody may trip and fall tomorrow and break a bone. So we wanna make sure that we're able to be objective about the hazards and the risks without getting tripped up on our own personal perceptions. And then the transparency is that we're able to articulate those things very clearly based on frequency, severity, objective perspectives. And then from there, we can put those controls in place. So this is where we're gonna actually define what needs to be done to prevent the incidents. So we wanna be, we wanna be diligent about it. We wanna make sure we have the expectations and the procedures and the PPE and the lockout procedures and all the things that are needed. We wanna make sure they're effective. So they're actually gonna, gonna do what they need to do to mitigate the hazard. We wanna look for redundancy. So what I mean by that is, for example, uh, using the pandemic as an example, there's some organizations that said, well, we're gonna check temperatures at the front door and then we're gonna, um, we're gonna ask everybody to stay six feet apart. But in reality that, you know, just checking temperatures, somebody can get past that uh, just by taking Tylenol. And if you don't have social distancing set up as part of your processes, then it may not, may not happen. But if you add in, for example, if you add in the face mask for source control, then that contains the droplets. If you physically separate people, then that way their workstations aren't near each other. Um, if you have people that are in proximity to potentially infectious people, then you have your respirators, which provides the PPE uh, and the air filtration. So redundancy is important that we're able to capture all the different ways the hazard can exist. Um, with slip trips and falls, for example, it may be the kind of thing that, you know, it's one thing to, um, it's one thing to put down a wet floor sign, but it's, it's much better to clean up the hazard and draw the floor. Or if we have cords, you know, we can tape the cord down, but if it's possible, we can move the cord or we can, um, we can get it tied up so it's out of the way. But um, we wanna make sure we don't settle for the, the easy option. Uh, and of course, we wanna make sure we're looking for feasibility. So sometimes, for example, um, again, with the pandemic, you know, it, it, it wasn't feasible to, um, it wasn't feasible to get the, the same model in 95 that we've had for years because they just, they weren't available to be purchased. So instead we had to, we were able to find new N95s, but then we had to make sure we went back and got the new fit test with it. So that way we were getting, we, we found the feasible option, but we still made sure it was safe. Um, and then of course, applicability is we wanna make sure that the hazard controls that we're using apply to that actual hazard. So one of the things that's um, important there, for example, with workplace violence, there's been some situations where people will say, well, we're gonna do a, a risk assessment. So if, if there's any reason to believe that somebody 
is potentially violent, then we're going to run a background check and we're going to, you know, run a police record. And then if that person seems to be dangerous, then we're going to just, you know, remove them from the situation. But in reality, a lot of these workplace violence incidents happen before there's ever any indicators, you know, so having that process is great for long-term strategy, but we also want to be able to provide um, education and training on the indicators to look for as far as the the potential um, aggression or any threats or uh, body language, those different things, then how to de-escalate that, how to create reactionary distance, how to hit a panic button, how to call for support. So all these things that can create safety in real time. So again, it provides to where it's applicable to the situation, it's feasible, and it provides the redundancy and the due diligence. Uh, then of course, the situational awareness is important because if people don't know what to look for in real time, then there's a pretty good chance the hazard can get overlooked. And so of course, these things apply very importantly because when we talk about hazard controls, you know, in some cases we can eliminate or we can substitute certain chemicals or whatnot, or we can use engineering control. That's a great way to do it in a scientific way. It creates passive controls. And so people are able to work safely without having to really um, do a lot of critical thinking. But when we get into mostly some administrative control, or excuse me, some engineering controls, a lot of administrative controls and definitely PPE and training, then it becomes an art form. It becomes leadership because we have to be able to train people to do these things in real time. And so, of course, art form is the most, you know, leadership is the most difficult art form. So we want to be able, again, to go back to the clear, transparent expectations. And so, like we said, with communication is we want to be able to be consistent. And we want to do that without, you know, without being to the point where people consider it annoying. So the best bet there is to use different different formats, you know, consistent, recurring, different methods. So it might be something as simple as emails, um, tailgates, or or safety moments, different different discussions, bulletin boards, um, um, websites, newsletters, all the different ways we can communicate. But the idea is that people hear it on a consistent, recurring basis. And then, of course, we want to watch out that. Uh, sometimes I've seen things in the past where organizations will feel like if we talk about safety, then it creates a liability because if there's an incident, someone can say that we talked about safety, but then this thing didn't happen, so we didn't follow our own policy. So it becomes a liability. So once again, we want to be able to talk to the organizations and everybody be on the same page as far as what the expectations are and how the hazard controls work so that we're able to clearly define those, those safety needs and communicate them without any fears of that. Then we get into our leading indicators. So we wanna make sure that we're able to, you know, to prevent as much as possible. So you can see this guy here, he's, uh, this guy on the top, he's, he's getting perplexed because he's chasing these incidents, can't figure out why they're happening. And he's, he's, you know, he's got his incident reports and he's losing money and chasing this thing that's already happened down the hill. But this guy down here, he's got his, his near-miss reports and his inspections and observations, so he's able to prevent those things. He's going to stop that incident before it rolls over him. And so, the, again, that's very important that we're able to do that. But we want to make sure that we're following through on it. So we want to make sure that 
if we do an observation, we find something that's potentially unsafe that we're able to follow through and figure out whether we need other hazard controls or whether we need to communicate better or whether we need retraining. Um, and we want to do that without being counterproductive. So we don't want it to be a gotcha game or where people get scared and they think they're going to get fired. You know, we want to make sure that it's a just culture. And a lot of times incentive programs can help with that or recognition. So if we do the observations, when we see safe work practices, if we recognize that, then people are empowered and they take the initiative to work safely because they know that it's not something they're going to uh, get any kind of reprisal for. And we, of course, want to watch out for these things because with lagging indicators, you know, unfortunately, they, they just go from bad to worse where we have a situation that, you know, first it affects the employee, then it affects the incident rate, but ultimately, and more importantly, it affects people's health. We get situations where people are on days away, restrictions or transitional duty, they can't work, they get incurred costs or direct costs. Um, and then from there, it affects compliance, it affects productivity, but more importantly, it affects, it affects people. You have less people to do more work, which creates rushing, fatigue, frustration, distractions, which creates more incidents. And then when we do those analyses, we want to make sure that we're able to do that in a way that's valid and reliable. So we want to be able to look at the situation and figure out uh, what happened, why it happened, and what's needed to, to prevent it from reoccurring. But we don't want to do that in a way where people feel like, you know, it's a village tribunal. So we want we don't want people to get called in and get put under a light and they feel like um, that, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing where people are looking out for their best interests or others. So again, we wanna focus on what happened, why it happened and how we can prevent it and not make it an accusatory thing. Uh, and then that goes into just culture is we wanna make sure that um, we're able to uh, continually improve without, without being a game of gotcha or anything that people feel is um, retaliatory. And so why this is all important is because what we talked about is this gives us a way to set up our safety management and our safety leadership to where it's beneficial for the organization and it creates effectiveness and efficiency and holistic, you know, positive safety. But it does that in a way that keeps it where we know what the expectations are. We know what we need to do. We know how to do it well. And it works out with us and the team. And that in turn prevents us from having uh, distress and burnout and fatigue. So if we know what we're working on, we know how it relates to safety committee, hazard analysis, hazard control, communication, leading indicator, lagging indicator, then that helps us with ultimately our mental health. So why that's so important is because first and foremost, we wanna have emotional intelligence. So we gotta watch out for this because ultimately it comes down to ethics. You know, we want to make sure we're keeping things as safe as we can. And we want to do that without, uh, without, you know, people, people feeling they're getting walked over. So you see here that with safety performance, you know, there's a difference between not having a control or not communicating the control or not training people versus somebody didn't follow the expectation. But first, we got to make sure that we have the control, we have the training, we have the expectations, we have the communication. And then if they still don't do it, then it becomes a performance issue. And that's different 
than there not being an expectation and somebody getting hurt um, because we, we can't kill our way to victory. You know, we can't fire people and write people up and expect them to suddenly become safe. And then again, it goes back to dual accountability. So another thing that we wanna watch out for both on our end and also at the organizational side is gaslighting. And this is something, honestly, I didn't know there's a word for until a couple of years ago. I, um, I've seen this numerous times, more than I'd ever like to count. And I didn't know there was a word for it. But the reality is you see here that gaslighting comes in several forms. Uh, in the past, I would have just called it people being unethical, people being selfish, you know, people being mean. But what it is, is when someone tries to assert power over somebody else. And they do that by telling them bullface lies or by denying something or uh, trying to coerce somebody or they're doing things that they're talking about things they don't actually do. Um, they try to confuse people. And so with safety, this becomes very relevant because number one, as safety professionals, we wanna watch out for these things. I've, I've seen all these things in the past where uh, people will tell me things like, um, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't do this, or you didn't train this person, or you didn't uh, write this plan, or whatever it may be. But in reality, every time I was able to come back and show the evidence that that had been done. And so um, when somebody is making accusations or things of that nature, it can get very stressful, and it can be hard. So if we know what gaslighting looks like, then we can watch out for these things on our own end. But as far as being safety professionals, we never want to do these things. So, for example, if we have a situation where something's potentially unsafe, we don't want to be the person telling people, oh, you know, you're just being paranoid. Just go ahead and do it. Don't worry about it, you know, or, um, oh, I know you think it's a high risk, but I know, I know better. Don't worry about it. We want to make sure that we hear their feedback, we hear their concerns, and then we're able to work on behalf of everybody, which is servant leadership. So we don't want to be the one doing these things. And so the way that, you know, again, we can watch out for these things and definitely not be the one that does them. So the way to make sure that we can kind of safeguard against this for our own safety, you know, for our own careers, so to speak, is that, like we talked about before, we want to do our diligence. So we want to know that we've done our hazard analysis. We know the hazards. We know the risk level. We communicated the needs. We communicated the expectations. We communicated the hazard controls. We did our leading indicators. We know what observations. We know our inspections. We investi um, investigated and analyzed the incidents. Because if we've done these things and we can vouch for these things, then it's much more difficult for somebody to gaslight us. Um, and then, of course, as far as our, our teams, we want to make sure that we're very clear and transparent. We want to be able to set the expectations, define the hazard controls, and then validate those things are being done so that people don't feel like they're being told to do something that's unsafe. And that in turn creates that just culture so that at the end of the day, we have, you know, we have 25% of our people that are already working safely. If we have 25% that are going to be defiant about it, and then we have 50% in the middle, we want to work to actively get those 50% in the middle to work safely. So the more people we have that are working safely, the people that are defiant feel more uncomfortable about that.
And ultimately, this creates a situation where we're able to prevent as much as possible at the high frequency level so that it doesn't become more severe. So as you see here, it goes backwards. We have the visitor safety issues that are more severe but less frequent. We have infection control issues that are less frequent, but again, more severe. And then it gets up to that emergency management level where it's the most severe. And when I say most severe, not only for in terms of people's safety and health, but severity, it'll shut down the organization. We saw in the last two years, the pandemic completely shut down the economy. So if we handle these hazards at the employee safety level, then we can prevent it from becoming a public safety infection control and definitely not an emergency management situation. And that in turn allows us to be able to, um, you know, to mitigate those stressors and create an environment where not only are we able to efficiently and effectively work, but the organization benefits and definitely the team and the public benefits. So this is a kind of a case study that I always show where we can see how these things happen. So once again, if we're able to trace all of our efforts back to those consistent components, hazard analysis, hazard control, communication, leading indicator, lagging indicator, investigation, and we're able to do those things effectively, efficiently with transparency, good management, servant leadership, then that's going to in turn help us do our job without those extra stressors and extra burnout. And then in turn, that also lets us watch out for anything so we can make sure we're not gaslighting and we're not being gaslighted and that we're able to continually improve not only for others, but also for our own, for our own safety. And so the last thing we always want to talk about is that we want to watch out for any whistleblower situations. So we want to know about uh, what constitutes a whistleblower and why that's important. We've had situations in the past with Ebola where whistleblowers were very prevalent. There have been situations with COVID-19 where whistleblowers are very prevalent. And we got to watch out for that because it can also lead to normalization of deviance where if we don't catch these things, then they can become normal and that creates a much higher risk. And ultimately, if we watch out for these things, then it creates sustainability for everybody involved. So we have good mental health. We can watch out for things like PTSD, whether it's from uh, incidents that happen at work or whether it's things in our own life. And we can watch out for uh, our own physical health. So if we're able to you know, streamline our efforts, keep things effective and efficient, then that makes everything better all around. And then of course, we also wanna watch out for those things in terms of possible, um, possible situations with, with HIPAA. We wanna make sure we're having good confidentiality, good privacy with the information we share. And we wanna watch out for Disabilities Act. When we're putting those controls in place is that we wanna make sure that those are effective for everybody and that there's full inclusion there. And some things we also want to think about are that, of course, the work is, you know, it's never going to be complete. It's just the way it goes. There's always going to be something to prevent. And that, that constant proactivity can incur and create anxiety. But if we watch out for that and we make sure that we have the hazards watched out for, the controls in place, the expectations, the communication, and the validity, then that way we know that we're doing our diligence and we're able to continually improve. And ultimately, it comes down to these five things. So if we do those things consistently and effectively, 
and we watch out for those potential issues we talked about, then ultimately we can we can always get better and and salvage our own mental and physical health in the process. But um, as always, of course, this is the kind of thing we could talk about forever. But if there's any questions or concerns, I'm happy to talk more offline and um, appreciate y'all's time today. Well, thank you, Corey. Really appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. Um, before we start the q and I want to let everyone know about an evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open up in a different screen after this webinar, and your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. Corey, it looks like we've got time for one question today, and I wanted to, uh, to take a question from our audience here. And our audience member says, I'm a safety director, and I have a large say when employees are terminated for safety issues. Now, his wife is concerned about potential workplace violence issues. And our audience members want, wants to know, um, what can he do to protect himself and also maybe um, ease his wife's fears a little bit about workplace violence situations as a safety professional? That's a great question. And there, there's a couple of, couple of variables in that. So the first one is, like we talked about, we wanna make sure that we have a just culture so we want to make sure that we're very clear about the hazard, the risk, the expectations as far as safe work, and that we're able to validate those things. So if something's unsafe, we can do corrective action, and we can make sure that the employees are taken care of. And then if it becomes a performance issue, and we have to go into um, uh, whatever the word I'm looking for, accountability, you know, in, enforcement, so to speak, then we want to make sure we're very transparent about that. And then from there, if it still leads to that situation, then we want to make sure that we're being sensitive to things like his HIPAA. So if the employee has any uh, personal health conditions, ADA, if they need any accommodations, anything we can do to make the situation better and prevent any kind of um, anything that's potentially unethical, unjust, anything that may aggravate the situation. And then, of course, we always want to check to make sure that um, you know, we're doing things by, by legal means. Um, if there's any, any situations with whistleblowers or any other factors in there, we want to watch out for that. But if there's still a situation where somebody's needs to be terminated, then we would definitely want to watch out for any indicators there. So again, we want to make sure that we covered all of our bases. And then as the situation goes through, we want to watch out for anything such as aggression, threats, um, any hostile uh, intimidation, anything that may give any indicators there's potential workplace violence. If there's time and resources, you know, things like uh, uh, background checks and whatnot can always provide some kind of insight if there's time for that. And then from there, there's certain measures, you know, they can have security uh, deterrence in place. Uh, things like panic buttons can help. Um, and then, of course, just knowing when it's time to call for support and when it's time to, to egress. But um, outside of the workplace, definitely, you know, watch for indicators, see if there's any reason to believe there's a threat. And if so, uh, you know, call for support. If there's any emotional needs there, then the employee assistance program is a good thing. Um, there's always people to talk to, support that can be gotten. And... Um, you know, we can always watch for those things because not only is it a potential physical threat, but there's also the potential for, you know, anxiety, 
depression, burnout, uh, all kinds of things that can come from that. So we always want to know we've done our due diligence, know we covered all of our bases, watch for indicators, call for support when needed. Um, and a lot of times that that covers a lot of the situations and then any anything that seems out of the ordinary, you know, it's always good to report it and, and ask for help. Great. Well, thank you, Corey. Appreciate that response. Unfortunately, folks, we have run out of time today. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all the unanswered questions will be forwarded today to Corey. Um, again, we also hope you take some time to fill out the feedback via our survey. And I'd like to thank our terrific presenter today, Corey Worden, everyone from our sponsor at Aveta, and of course, all of you who joined us today. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.